there needs to be a, a dose of realism about like how DC actually functions today and what it takes, you know, to successfully operate in that context. The reason that I love the Mirrors for Princes mm-hmm. tradition and the reason I put together this book is like it is not a theoretical book. Mm-hmm. This is a, you know, this is a a manual, mm-hmm. you know, for an embattled statesman. Mm-hmm. Very practical. It connects connects the whole world of theory to action. Mm-hmm. So like any contemporary political leader or mm-hmm. aspiring one can mm-hmm. open this up and there are concrete nuggets of wisdom and applications mm-hmm. that that both play to their self-interest mm-hmm. but also to hopefully, you know, mm-hmm. other good and classical virtues. Is Donald Trump a statesman? Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. Our third episode of the season and three episodes where we tape together. We have a fantastic episode for you guys today. Something a little bit different, but certainly a lot of fun. We had on our friend, the president and CEO of ISI, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, Johnny Bertka, on to talk about his new book. But before I get to that, be sure, as always, to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find the backlog of this podcast and everything else we have cooking. Uh, summer fellowship applications are closed, but I'm sure you can sign up for uh, a wait list for the fall fellowship. Uh, we're doing this year around now. You can sign up for AM Fridays. This is our lecture series on Capitol Hill that we're doing from February 22nd to, I believe, May 3rd. Um, 10 lunches uh, in the Russell Senate office building, Chick-fil-A catered uh, on the basics of how to think about the world the way we do. Fantastic speakers ranging from Elbridge Colby to Russ Vote to Stephen Miller and many, many others talking about all of the issues that matter. Um, our gala for American Statecraft is coming up. You can go to AmericanMoment.org slash gala uh, or gala statecraft or statecraftgala.org. That's yeah. the other URL. And you can buy tickets to help support us. We have David Sachs and J.D. Vance speaking that night. David will be presented with the Third Rail Award for Public Courage. Highly encourage you guys to check that out. But Going to the episode that we have today, we had on John A. Bertka IV, uh, or Johnny, as we know him, uh, who's the president and CEO of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. He graduated from Hillsdale College, which degrees in French and Christian studies, and earned a graduate degree in theology from La Faculté Jean Calvin in Aix de Provence. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> He began his career at ISI, where he served as a development officer, and he returned to ISI after four years as the American Conservative Magazine's executive director and acting editor. He's appeared on Fox News and Fox Business and written for The Washington Post, The Richmond Times-Dispatch, First Things, The American Mind, and The Intercollegiate Review, among other publications. He has been a Lincoln Fellow at the Claremont Institute and has participated in academic fellowships at Washington College and the Trinity Forum. He lives in Pennsylvania with his fantastic wife, Amanda, who we love as well. Uh, his new book is Statesmanship, Selections from Xenophon to Churchill. The forward is by Larry Arn. Uh, we had a fun episode basically overviewing um, letters to princes from a time immemorial, you know, whether it's uh, an obscure uh, bureaucrat in Han, China, 3000 years ago to more contemporary examples like Cicero Um Johnny has basically gone across the world and across the last 4,000 years of human history to find 
uh, examples of the best advice that is given to great statesmen from uh, people who do the thinking for them. And so we had a really fun time needling him about, well, is FDR a good statesman? And, you know, all the hard examples, the stuff that the president of ISI probably doesn't want to be talking about. Um, but we had a fantastic time. I highly encourage you guys to listen to the episode. And I'll be honest, after after the episode, I I, I want to dive deeper into the book as well. So it was uh, absolutely fantastic. I don't know what you thought about it, Nick. Yeah, it was a very good uh add for the book for sure it was like listening to this it's like okay man a bunch of people should buy this um so we we greatly enjoyed the episode uh uh, johnny was commenting that we really put him on the hot seat about uh uh particular people from uh not just american history but western history so uh very very enjoyable conversation and a lot of fun tidbits in the bonus section for subscribers only. Absolutely. So if you would like to subscribe, go to YouTube. We spend a lot of money on this. You get the episode 24 hours early, so you can watch it on Sunday. And you get the special subscribers only section. That's, uh, you know, 10 to 20 minutes of some really juicy stuff that we don't put publicly. This time it was uh, who the most overrated statesman is, um, what must be done with the ISI Tweed Bros. Um, what did you ask him? That was I asked him about the uh, conservative media ghetto. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So really taking names and talking uh, S-H-I-T. So uh, we we had a really good time. Uh, There's two levels. There's uh, truthers and uh, especially relevant for this episode, uh, statesmen. And so uh, go and subscribe, support our content on YouTube. We're on season four of this. We've done literally over 130 episodes. Uh, Many of you are uh, very religious listeners to this show. So show your support by subscribing. We'll go now to Johnny Bertka. Johnny, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We always like to hear about how our guests got to where they are today. Uh, you are astonishingly young to be running such an august organization. Tell us that story. How does one do it? Um, uh, a lot of our guests are young and uh, would also like to be running important things one day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I was fortunate enough to have uh, entrepreneurs for parents. So mm-hmm. my uh, my parents actually quit their their day jobs and started a winery when I was about 12 years old. So they basically sold everything, purchased a plot of land, planted the grapes. So I was out there as a 12 year old, you know, where was this? Digging the dirt. This was in South Central Michigan. I not a place that I think of not a (laughs) place. Why? (laughs) No. And uh, yeah, now there's probably over, you know, 40 wineries in the state of Michigan. So it's really boomed, you know, in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. But then they were pioneers. Uh, And uh, so, you know, I got experience from a young age working behind the, you know, I think I was 14 years old, like pouring samples for people at the winery. Um, So, you know, a lot of, I think the practical just leadership skills or organization skills, I really Mm -hmm. got drilled into me helping Mm -hmm. my parents uh, manage what turned into um, uh, two wineries, a brewery and several restaurants. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, from there, all in Michigan, all in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I went to a local public high school, Hanover Horton, Mm -hmm. uh, very proud of uh, Hanover Horton Comets. And uh, actually, when it came time to go to college, um, a family friend, you know, twisted my arm to visit Hillsdale. I really didn't want anything to do with going to Hillsdale. (laughs) Why? Because it was nearby or? Well, it was nearby and my heart was set on going to the University of Michigan. Yeah. So I had season tickets to Michigan football from the time I was seven years old. That was like, I actually remember laying in bed at night as a seven-year-old thinking like there's nothing i love more in the world than the michigan wolverines yeah and so that was my that was my destiny and that it was interrupted by a lecture on abraham lincoln (laughs) (laughs) that that i heard at hillsdale college and uh 
I, then I kept just going back for more. I sat in on classes and I remember you were I, like, I would like four years of lectures in Abraham. Yeah, like, give, me, give me four years of it. And I actually remember uh, sitting in on this lecture with Dr. Westblade. It was a religion lecture. And then afterwards, my dad and I talking to him, my dad saying, you know, what on earth is Johnny to do with this liberal arts degree from Hillsdale? And he said, you know, John, why don't you go home and look at the company you're currently working for? This was, I think, before he had um, opened all of the wineries. And uh, he said, look at the, the C-suite and see what their undergraduate degree was. And it turns out at the time, I don't know if this is still true today at many companies, they all basically had humanities undergraduates mm-hmm. before they ended up going and getting their MBAs. And so, uh, you know, got a great scholarship to Hillsdale. And that ended up really ch- changing the, the whole trajectory mm-hmm. of my life. What, what, what was your first interaction with Larry Arn? And, you know, how has that since influenced the way that you've operated in life? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I mean, I think it was like most students, he always had lunch in the cafeteria. And so if you were fortunate enough to to have him sit at your table, you would your lunch conversation would shift. And to be clear, he like he just plops down wherever. Right. And starts wherever he wants you know, and just starts holding court, you know, asking questions about Aristotle, interrogating different students. Uh, So that was probably the first interaction. But then the more formative one was my senior year. And I took uh, two classes with him. So I had an Aristotle class. That was just an entire semester on only the Nicomachean ethics. And then the second semester was C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man and That Hideous Strength. And we read those together. Um, So from there, he's been basically a a mentor of mine. Yeah. What did you end up doing after college? So after college, I went to France and I attended a French seminary. Uh, So I was actually reformed Protestant at the time. So it was the La Faculté Jean Calvin um, in Aix-en-Provence. And uh, I did essentially an MDiv equivalent. Mm -hmm. I thought I wanted to be a pastor. So that was my track. Um, By the end of it, I was no longer a Calvinist. (laughs) Uh, Dang. uh, But I did do a year after that, a year-long fellowship with the Trinity Forum. They used to have this program out on the eastern shore of Maryland where uh, 12, six guys and six girls lived in a house. It's kind of like real world. (laughs) Uh, And it was right on the Chesapeake Bay. And then every week they'd bring in different speakers. And so Josh Mitchell was one of the, you know, frequent lecturers there. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the end of that, I had had spent the year studying early Christian liturgical texts and decided I wanted to become Eastern Orthodox. Mm -hmm. And so I basically put all the, uh, you know, pastoral aspirations to the side (laughs) and reached back out to Larry Arn and said, I want to get involved in politics. So I I just applied, you know, I slept on couches in D.C. I tried to get coffee with everyone I could. I applied for a dozen jobs and uh, ISI um, was the one that, you know, gave me the interview. And so I started with ISI in 2014. I did fundraising. Then I left for four years to run the American Conservative magazine. And now I've been back as president for three and a half years at ISI. That's awesome. Uh, It's a very interesting story. And, you know, the the book you've written, I think, is is almost perfectly suited to the the job you have. And I'm sure Mm -hmm. that that was part of partially uh, why you you wrote it. Um, Tell us a little bit about the book. Um, What what was the formative uh, thought process that led to you deciding to Mm -hmm. put in the enormous effort to actually get pen to paper? Absolutely. So, you know, looking at our contemporary American political culture, lots of people perpetually pl- complain about America's leaders, mm. especially Congress. Mm-hmm. I mean, the approval rating in Congress is like 20 percent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's totally in the gutter. And for all the complaining, um, you know, if you look at, let's say, the business sector, there are a million self-help books, you know, Jim Collins, Good to Great, yeah. Peter Thiel, Zero to One on how to be the next Steve Jobs, how mm-hmm. to build a unicorn company. Mm-hmm. And literally nothing comparable exists for statesmen. 
aspiring statesman or current statesman. Mm -hmm. So I just found it, you know, a bit ironic. And I saw this void that if we're going to complain about our political leaders, shouldn't we actually have a a bar, Mm -hmm. set the standard for the type of conduct that we want to see from Mm -hmm. them and then actually create the institutions of learning that are necessary Mm -hmm. to raise and train them up. Mm -hmm. And so the Mirrors for Princes genre is essentially these are self-help books for political leaders They existed in every culture and civilization known to mankind, going all the way back to antiquity. I mean, China, India, Greece, Rome, all the way throughout Byzantium, the Middle Mm -hmm. Ages. And then they had a flowering in the Renaissance. And then the genre just totally disappeared Mm -hmm. in the modern era. Mm -hmm. Um, And so does that have something to do with the creation of the franchise? Sorry, the franchise. Like, did did voting coming around as a as a concept? Yeah, I I, I see what you're saying. I think so. Yes. Yeah. So I think there's really three reasons. Yeah. The first is the shift from monarchies to representative forms yeah. of government. But I actually think it's, you know, it's easy, perhaps a little bit easier when you know who the, the young prince is mm-hmm. or you know who the king or queen's going to be yeah. to write them a letter and hand deliver it and basically use it as a way to offer your services, either as a tutor or yeah. a counselor. But there's no reason we couldn't do, you know, reappropriate the genre for presidents or senators or governors today. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's really two other reasons. Well, people are resentful, though, right? Because that would imply that you know who those people are going to be 20 years ahead of time. Sure. Well, <laughs> that's that's true. So some of those, you know, some of them were given as gifts to to the young prince, right, mm-hmm. when you knew who they were going to be. But many of these were also given to, you know, it was at, at the coronation, yeah. right? They were given as gifts um, to kings and queens there. I think the two other factors at the beginning of the progressive era, there was a shift away from statesmanship classically understood in favor of management and expertise. Uh, There was, you know, people became uncomfortable with the idea of, you know, a great sold statesman, you know, with his or her hand on the rudder of the ship of of, of state, you know, navigating it through Mm -hmm. tumultuous waters and unpredictable winds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people felt more comfortable with the the scientific bureaucratic approach Mm -hmm. to statesmanship. And then I think the last thing is the Mm -hmm. contemporary university system just stopped teaching these classic texts because they're guilty of what C.S. Lewis described as presentism. You know, basically, if it wasn't written in the last 10 minutes, then it's not really worth their time. Mm-hmm. So what do you think that is that that the let's just call it like the American people focus on that instead of like the West as a whole sort of focusing more on like middle managers, basically to lead the country as opposed to like great men? Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, obviously, I think it was you know, part and parcel of the wider, um, well, obviously the, the progressive movement had some origins in sort of the German university system and model. Um, and I think that, that approach just favored kind of management expertise, a permanent bureaucracy. And so a lot of that was just imported. I think some of it also has to do with, uh, business culture in the United States, um, you know, some these businesses, you know, kind of if you think like coming out of the Gilded Age were just such behemoths uh, that, you know, in order to run them, they had to be run more like, you know, kingdoms, you know, and you know, massive bureaucratic organizations. And so people learned that bureaucratic approach in business. And I think it bled over into political life, too. Do you think that, um, uh, you know, with the and you don't need to give away the book too much, you know, pe- people that listen to this show should buy it. But do you think that with the election of Trump that people are kind of moving away from that now? They're they're less interested in being under bureaucratic management? Uh, well, I think people have seen bureaucratic management for what it is. The veil has been mm-hmm. lifted. 
And I, for a long time in American history, I actually think there was, uh, you know, a fairly strong amount of faith in and even pride in. I think if you put it, if you described it as bureaucracy, people probably wouldn't be proud of that. Yeah. You know, but I think generally if people I'm not saying conservatives, but if you just have your average American is looking back at, like, let's say, the New Deal or baby boomers looking at LBJ's kind of legacy uh, the great society programs, you know, I think there's a general sense of like, yeah, that was, there were good intentions and like it made a difference. And this is sort of like part of the American fabric. But I think over time, um, the interests of the permanent class in Washington, DC really divorced itself from the interests of the American people. And, you know, I think the election of Donald Trump was really, uh, sort of this, this, a wake up call, um, to, you know, basically it, it was the American people kind of standing up and saying, we actually see this bureaucracy for mm-hmm. what it is and we're ready for a radical change. So I, I, I want to come back to some of the contemporary political implications of this a little bit later. But before that, you know, talking about why this kind of writing has gone away, um, do you, would it be accurate to say that part of the reason is that the process of electing leaders became a substitute for the more classical qualifications of great rulers like because you got elected therefore you have everything you need to rule became the the shorthand as opposed to in hereditary monarchies like you were going to rule and this was to make you a better one um, one way or another yeah i i mean i think there's something well i think twofold just basically about the election process one of it is you know so much of our whole american political system is actually focused on getting elected and not actually governing once you're elected. You know, if you think of the whole <clears throat> kind of the, the whole pageantry around presidential elections, like, mm-hmm. the, you know, all the nostalgia, or even all the political reporters who kind of geek out on all this sort of old historic election kind of, mm-hmm. you know, horse trading, like they're really telling stories about the campaign, you know, the great political campaigns. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that's that's where all the money is. Mm-hmm. Right. And then once you get elected, then it's sort of the, the, the boring job of you've are, you've mm-hmm. conquered sort of winning the election is kind of the ancient equivalent of mm-hmm. being a conqueror. And then the ruling part, yeah. it, you know, is the boring part yeah. that it's sort of like, yeah, that doesn't really matter. Yeah. Like we've already kind of won the the victory. So in, in conservative circles in the United States, we, we talk a lot about Western civilization and I have my issues with it because I think people substitute that for like good things, like good things equals Western civilization. Um, but I, I remember months and months ago when we were first talking about this book that, that you were working on, um, you were particularly excited about some of the more like esoteric non-Western mm-hmm. examples of great statesmanship. Tell us about some of those. Uh, I want to I want to get um, a little bit more color on on what else you found other than, you know, the obvious stuff in Greece and Rome and Renaissance Europe, sure. and things like that. Yeah. So I think the three, um, well, I, let's say four that I really um, liked, you know, one was Han Fei's um, The Art of Persuasion. So Han Fei was an ancient Chinese legalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was really, uh, I would say, a proto Machiavelli. So he was a total realist in his outlook of the world. What era would he have been around? Um, I should know this exactly. Even what I think it was like 10th helpful. or 11th century. Got it. BC. Okay. So right around um, turn of the millennium. And uh, oh, BC. BC. Okay. Yeah. So, so like going 3,000 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, he has re- like the advice is is brutal. I mean, yeah. he literally doesn't, he's totally amoral in how he's yeah. assessing politics, yeah. but there are even differences in how he approaches or recommend leaders approach management. So one example is he thinks the the political ruler should not be a prominent public facing figure mm. that the political ruler needs to 
be hiding himself constantly mm-hmm. and especially keep his his desires hidden from his own ministers. Mm-hmm. So he will basically he advises the leader to never tell your your closest ministers what you actually think. So you basically, you know, bring them all into the room, you give them the problem you want them to solve and then they come back and report to you yeah. and you're totally impassable. You don't yeah. let on and you hear all of the proposals because he says if you tell them if you signal what you would like to hear, they're all going to tailor their advice to what they think you want to hear. Interesting. The other thing he says is if you're evaluating per- so performance reviews in ancient <laughs> <laughs> the ancient Han dynasty. Yeah. Basically he he lets each minister pick like the target, you know, yeah. their KPIs, you define your KPI. Yeah. Um, but what happens is when they come back and report on how they did, if they fall short of their KPIs, he punishes them. Yeah. If they exceed their KPIs, he punishes them. <laughs> <laughs> because he says, you know, if you fall short, then you you kind of just suck. You're not good. You're not good as good as you think you are. But if you exceed it, He's like, then you set the goal intentionally too low and you were unaware of your capabilities or you're trying to trick me, yeah. you know. Um, so that that's the kind of advice you'll encounter. But the, the selection I included really goes into the art of persuasion. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really sort of a crash course in rhetoric and mm-hmm. how do you win people over to your position. Mm-hmm. Um, shifting, you know, making our way from, from east to west. There's an ancient Indian text uh, written by Katilya. Um, and so this, this text really focuses a lot on two things. One is restraint. So the first one, you know, a good ruler ought to have control of their passions, right? Not be given to gluttony, um, or to sort of any other kind of typical vices associated Mm -hmm. with the passions. Mm -hmm. Thought that was very fundamental for ruling. That's how the book starts out. But then it really, um, focuses in on personnel Mm -hmm. and, you know, how personnel, the whole success Mm -hmm. of your political operation depends on personnel, Mm -hmm. which dovetails very well. (laughs) Indians who care a lot about personnel. Why why would you say such a thing? (laughs) Um, uh, then as we kind of continue to work our way over, you get to um, a text in Byzantium that mm-hmm. I like. So this was written in the 6th century mm-hmm. AD. Uh, this was um, Agapetus the Deacon's letters to Justinian the Great. Mm-hmm. So these are essentially uh, pr- proverbial wisdom that was written to Emperor Justinian, and who was ultimately known for uh, you know building the Hagia Sophia mm-hmm. and then writing the the Justi- Justian- Justinianic legal code, mm-hmm. uh, the Code of Justinian, basically still shapes kind of European law to this day. Um, And that advice actually is very, it's very anti-elite, which is interesting. So I think a lot of times when you think back, you know, or when we contemporary Americans think back to these historic monarchies or, you know, empires, we we often think, okay, you know, the king just sort of hangs out with the aristocrats, they go hunting, like it's sort of this cabal against the people. That's not at all how Justinian approached it or Agapetus. For him, it was that, you know, there's this sort of unshakable bond between the common people and the emperor. Uh, And it's the emperor's job to actually be a scourge in the elite aristocratic classes Mm -hmm. and to be the one that really disciplines and checks them and who actually rises above dueling aristocratic factions and sort of orders the whole polity sort of embodies the people not just represents them but like literally embodies them Mm -hmm. and sort of brings them before Mm -hmm. you know god and sort of more ultimate Mm -hmm. um, aims and then the last one i'll mention is el farabi's uh, aphorisms of a statesman so this is the islamic text uh he lived in syria i believe it was seventh eighth century Mm -hmm. a.d and here it's it's you know interesting again it's written in the form of proverbial wisdom mm-hmm. but his whole point is that 
you know, it's the the physician or doctor who cures bodies. It's the statesman who cures souls. Mm. So there's a, a wow. strong element of soul craft. Mm. Um, and he essentially unpacks what that looks like in Islamic did, context. Did, did he imply in that any relationship um, or, or tension between the statesman taking on that responsibility versus organized faith? And in, in his case, it would have been Islam uh, taking on that responsibility. And, and across the board, what's what's the <laughs> tension you've seen? between how, how statesmen think of their role versus, um, you know, the faith in, in whatever mm-hmm. society they find themselves in. Yeah, I, I think it may, might help if I just kind of address it more broadly than in the particular context of El, El Faribi, because I don't know all the ins and outs of how I don't know the Islamic kind of political system as well as I do the kind of the the pagan classical and the, mm-hmm. the Christian one. So in the uh, in the classical world, I mean, if you're going back to ancient Egypt or uh, Greece or Mesopotamia, um, you know, you basically the the monarch was a quasi divine figure. I mean, in the case of like Egypt, they were considered to be a god, mm-hmm. god kings. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was sort of the the ancient understanding of politics is basically like the the king is sort of a linchpin between the whole the, the world of the gods you know and the world of of mankind mm-hmm. and kind of linked it together and really the and this is even in ancient china you know that the um sort of this the temple where the the king or the emperor performed their rituals it was really this mediating of these two worlds mm-hmm. together um this is not not exactly the the picture of of kingship in ancient israel right obviously there is one god it's yahweh and the the king is a you know a lawgiver you know king david wrote the psalms like there is a big role to play for the state in terms of the religious functions but the priesthood is also a separate thing so mm-hmm. i would say it's more of a symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. in ancient israel then you have throughout the um let's say the first 1000 years of church history you kind of have uh you know well with the byzantine empire they largely um pick up with Constantine and Justinian, kind of the tradi- like the Roman understand, the Roman imperial understanding. And so kind of the model of politics and religion is one of symphonia, uh, where these two powers, you know, it's basically like they're, you know, the um, kind of the one of them's the heart, the other one's the soul. They work together. They're sort of integrated mm-hmm. in a in in a coherent whole. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean there aren't tensions, though. Right. Mm-hmm. At one point, Justinian literally uh, kidnaps the pope <laughs> and, and holds him hostage yeah. for years yeah. until he changes his theological opinion on something. So mm-hmm. uh, no one actually really thinks that that's a good <laughs> a good way to go about the interaction <laughs> of politics and religion. Yeah. But that is kind of the 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 ideal during that period of sim- symphony is sort of interrupted by these abuses and the charges of, you know, like Caesaropapism. Yeah. But then in the West, then you see a um, a real shift really after the Great Schism. So this is like 11th and 12th century. Up until that point in time, the, the coronation of monarchs was basically seen as a sacrament mm. in the church. So th- there was, it was very much kind of a there was a sacral quality, even like a priestly, priestly quality that was associated with political rulers. The The Catholic Church, um, I, I don't think many people know this, actually desacralized the monarchy uh, in large part to elevate the power of the papacy in mm-hmm. temporal affairs. So there was almost a secularization of the temporal sphere and an elevation of of the, the papal powers mm-hmm. that ended up then 
you know, leading to some of the kind of the the, divi- the a more strong strong division what, between you, the power around the what century state. would that have happened? Um, that would have happened in the twelfth twelfth okay. century, basically yeah. the first hundred years, sort of after the great um, after the great schism. Now yeah. you can actually go you can go back into the West and you can see. Um, you know, tracks, you know, is in the fifth and sixth century that are talking about like these two distinct powers, you know, the church and the state. Mm-hmm. And these are sort of two swords and they're separate and neither one should dominate the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that in the West, even going back to Augustine and, and earlier, you do see kind of a, a more clear division and distinction between the mm-hmm. two than you do see in the East. Yeah. But then throughout the, um, uh, e- e- you know, you have different relationships and Nick could probably talk you know, and others could talk with greater detail about the relationship between the papacy and various monarchs and then the relationship between after the Reformation, um, the various Protestant princes mm-hmm. and, you know, their Nick, could you talk? <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> Putting me on the spot. Uh, so anyways, that's yeah. kind of there's yeah. a lot more that could be yeah. explored there. But. So, so as another sort of broad framing question, you know, recognizing that such things are, are kind of con- contrived a little bit. Like, do you feel like having surveyed the landscape of, you know, the classical models of statesmanship in each of these civilizations, you can draw a through line to the way they're governed today? Like when you look at ancient ancient Chinese statesmanship's wisdom, do you see analogs to how the CCP is run today? Do you see analogs in how India is run today um, mm-hmm. in the West? I mean, I assume part of the drive for this book is you don't see it as much in the West as you'd like to. But uh, tell me a little bit about like having grappled with, you know, the status quo ante here, how how it changes your view of the differences between these cultures and how they're governed today. Yeah. So, I mean, part of what I wanted to do with this this book is I think that contemporary, you know, diplomats, statesmen, they do have a very, you know, it's sort of a McKinsey-esque management Mm -hmm. consulting approach to diplomacy and Mm -hmm. statesmanship. You know, Mm -hmm. they see everything, you know, they have basically their caseload and on their caseload, there are problem sets and they kind of, they're just working through it in a very Western rational way. And, and I think the great thing about this tradition is it shows the, the profound role of religion, Mm -hmm. but also kind of traditional cultures Mm -hmm. in their understanding of politics. Mm -hmm. And I think that should have more of an emphasis today. As you go into these different texts and you're trying to, to link to the present day, but, you know, part of me is hesitant to say, you know, like I've, I've included this text on, you know, from ancient China, you know, 3000 years ago. Yeah. And it's definitive for like, <laughs> how China like exercises yeah. power yeah. today. But I but I would say that um, there there is certainly mm-hmm. when, when you. Ju- so I guess one thing with the CCP, you know, the, the idea of sort of an individual mattering, you know, and meaning something and being sort of 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 immense value as an individual is totally non-existent, mm-hmm. right? They they really do have a pure kind of collective mm-hmm. focus for all of their policy mm-hmm. decisions. And if that means that whatever, 100,000 people, you know, several million people have to die here or there, mm-hmm. it's just purely like a rational kind of calculation. Yeah, the wall has to be built. Sorry. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so in that sense, uh, that sort of just cold realism, mm-hmm. pragmatism is fully on display in Hanfei, and you mm-hmm. see it today in China. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm sure that you could draw similar threads for, um, you know, the, the way the Islamic world approaches religion and politics, like Al-Farabi makes sense, you know, if you're looking at the Islamic mm-hmm. world today. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels that could be drawn. So 
in that case, then if you're taking the long view of, of history here, I mean, you, you've you've mentioned uh, what four thousand year range of time between these different mm-hmm. statesmen. Is there anything new under the sun? Ha, has have every peoples basically like reinvented the same thematic concerns for statesmen? in in just different eras and different places. Mm-hmm. So my reading of history is that there is nothing new under the sun. Yeah. That Oh, Ecclesiastes <laughs> was yeah. correct. Yeah. Okay. Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Thank correct. you. Yeah. Controversial Which is thing. actually funny because if, you know, uh yeah, so it's very simply put in Ecclesiastes, yeah. but yeah. I, if you it, political philosophers I think like to well they and you know, I I even just describe these different periods and how things changed a mm. bit in these periods. Um but I I don't know. There, there's a sense in which they they often kind of make claims, you know, as though human nature has changed in these different area eras, and people are mm-hmm. looking for different things in politics or, today, or even and, the novelty of discovery. Like human nature could be the same, but we have now said something that has never been said before sure. about it, which yeah, doesn't yeah, yeah. seem to be an evidence based on what you're saying. Yeah, or yeah. there's you know a new yeah. a new science of politics, yeah. or and then you see that in the progressive era, a new mm-hmm. and to me it's just. Uh, you know, actually, I, I think human beings are pretty much, all, you know, always like they've been, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they want certain fundamental things mm-hmm. from their government. And I think great leaders always embody the same qualities. And I would say even, you know, pretty much regardless of the regime type, I think the general qualities of a great leader mm-hmm. are pretty consistent. Yeah. I think it's really funny that you wanted to fact check the Bible. I you were not like, fact check the Bible. Is there anything it, new it, under it, the sun? I, no, it, I, I, that was the joke I was making. Ecclesiastes one nine: What has been will be again. There is nothing new under the sun. It's like the Bible Chris had memorized, <laughs> um, and so uh, I didn't know you were allowed to read that. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> okay, um, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, who is a political leader in American history that you don't like that you think embodied? The classical statesmanly virtues. Uh, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's that's it. okay. Let me ask this another way because I was fishing for one answer in particular. Was FDR a great statesman? That's yeah. That's, <laughs> that's an interesting question. I think if you're, uh, I think, I think the answer is yes. If you're looking at American history, in your you know, because I think there's a there's a number of. And that's not to say that all of the programs that he implemented were good ideas sure. or didn't have harmful effects. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, great leaders, I mean, someone like FDR won four presidential elections, yeah. right? He um, he was faced domestically with the Great Depression, and then he also had World War II, right? So these are sort of the two, probably the two greatest mm-hmm. an internal and external mm-hmm. challenge with the exception mm-hmm. of the Civil War and maybe like the, the founding itself. Um, that have ever faced the regime. And I think if you if you're just sort of broadly looking at, you know, did he I, well, did did he sort of, you know, lead America out of the Great Depression through victory in the Second World War? I think the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you look at people like Churchill, you know, like someone like Churchill had immense respect mm-hmm. for FDR as a mm-hmm. leader. Um, so, yeah. So I think I, I don't think there should be a and I think any American in the 20th century, like if you were just to go back and ask like my grandparents, like who who were as, you know, very conservative Catholics, um, you know, grew up in, uh, you know, Polish kind of immigrant communities outside of Detroit, you know, 
with if you were to ask them, you know, and they're totally outside of this DC bubble or conservative bubble, like was FDR a good mm-hmm. good good leader or a mm-hmm. great American? They'd say like absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like they would say like there's probably nothing more mm-hmm. American. It's like apple pie, FDR, yeah. right? Again, that's not to say that um we should imitate the he was also a very proud individual and also an individual who had you know immense vices in his own personal mm-hmm. life um and i think the 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 heavily kind of bureaucratic cuz even if we're mm-hmm. comparing the administrative state today versus the administrative state of fdr mm-hmm. like it was much more skinny then right and it was almost entirely accountable to him as president yeah. Uh, in a way Br- that Brother Curtis calls him Blue Caesar, you know, yeah. like, he- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and so in a way that today yeah. it's just not not the yeah. same with the administrative system. I am I'm going to put you on the spot and ask <laughs> the inverse. OK, who had the most success and was the worst statesman? In American history or yeah. just, in, just American just history. in American history, yeah. Who had the most success and was the worst statesman yeah. who got the luckiest yeah. <laughs> with the least yeah. beneficial qualities undergirding? Who had the most success, but was the worst statesman? Did you have an idea for like in all history? Did someone pop into mind? Um, let's see. I'm I'm just kind of thinking through the the figures that I've featured or profiled in the book. Well, I, to me, I guess it's those th- those those two things sort of stand in in contradiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because because I would say most I mean, I often judge a statesman by their by by their successes. Right. Like that to me, that's. Oh, so that's interesting. So that then then let's dive into that. Like what d- d- do great statesmen necessarily succeed is, is I guess, the, the logical question or or or, or can do statesmen can, can statesmen only be judged by their fruits? Um. So I think the so that's sort of a Machiavelli yeah. point about. You know, basically, like let the a statesman will be judged correct or triumphant, like if they accomplish mm-hmm. the means that they set out. And if they fail, like you know, they're basically going to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. I think he's even talking about the the means that they use to accomplish their goals mm-hmm. will be deemed just mm-hmm. if they're successful. But if they're not successful, mm-hmm. they'll be punished, right, mm-hmm. or thrown into prison. Um, so, yeah, so yeah, so I I think that I mean, if you think of like a George Washington, so there's this interplay. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't think you, you know, even in a democratic society, you don't really get to pick your leaders. Like, mm-hmm. and what I mean is that great leaders are emergent. Sure. And that there's this intersection of of virtue on one hand and fortune on the other. And there's a lot of great, lead, like great, there's a lot of good humans, virtuous humans. Even if like George Washington was born 10 years earlier or 10 years later, like we might not know his name. America might not exist as it is. There has to be this element of luck that you, Nick, kind of touched on a bit about where, where sort of the waves of fortune are coming. And uh, if you go to if you go to Machiavelli, he's basically, you know, towards the end of The Prince talking about, you know, does that mean it's, you're just pa- if you're a virtuous guy, but there's not a lot going on? Are you just going to be forgotten by history? <laughs> you know, what do you do? And so he's kind of talking about this almost like an exercise of yeah. like you're a surfer sort of out there. Yeah. He doesn't use the example of a surfer, but uh, he's basically saying you're sort of waiting for these waves of fortune yeah. and you have to time sort of your own paddling mm-hmm. along with the waves. Yeah. And so he, he mentions in particular that when fortune wants to make a prince great, she brings enemies before him and obstacles in his path. And basically every enemy, every obstacle is a ladder. Mm -hmm. And if those enemies or obstacles break, 
the the prince or the statesman, he's never going to be a great leader. But if he can com- climb them, that's the path to greatness. Well, that's kind of what I'm thinking about here is like um, take like dictators as an example. Right. Can they be effective but still be like not good mm-hmm. statesmen? So the first person to come to mind is like like Huey Long mm-hmm. is like is was was Huey Long a good statesman? Um, you know, he accomplished a lot in Louisiana, but seems like a pretty bad guy. You know, I, uh, uh, I'm kind of interested just in your, in your thoughts on that Mm -hmm. in general. Yeah. So I would first and foremost, I would judge the statesman by their accomplishments, by Mm -hmm. their effects. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's sort of my Mm -hmm. standard. And even that I think colored my FDR response. Mm -hmm. Cause in part, I think the answer is like, did he accomplish what, what he set out to accomplish? Mm -hmm. Did he basically build an entire new paradigm that we're still living in today? Mm-hmm. And so to me, there's a greatness there, even though it's not entirely a goodness. Sure. Mm. Um, with Huey Long, um, that one. So I, you know, I read the the Huey Long biography, I think that yeah. you had recommended. And it was one of those things where at first I was like, man, this is awesome. You know, like, <laughs> and then this you guy's get, a lot of fun. By and then the you end get of to it, the kidnappings and stuff. And you're yeah. Like, oh. By the end of it, I was just like, I just kind of want this guy to die. Like, he is just, and then he dies. And he dies. Right? <laughs> it's great. It's like, because it's like, he was, he was, you know, a demagogue in like, but when you actually saw how, how much corruption there was and how, I mean, just some of the things that he, not some of the things, many of the things that he promised, it just, it was the total inverse of the truth, but he was just so good at saying them yeah. and could fire people. Like I could imagine being in the crowd and just going crazy, but then in reality, there's, it's just sort of like, there's nothing there, there, you know, there's no there, yeah. there. Yeah. He'd be like free textbooks for everyone. And they go, hooray. And they'd be like, sir, how are we going to do that? I, I don't know. <laughs> like, and then not do it. Yeah, you know? and, then and then not then, do like, it at all. Or he built, you know, built all these roads, which in one sense was a great, you know, he's a builder. So this is another thing. Great leaders are builders, like mm-hmm. always builders. Built all these roads, but then a lot of them, like, you know, a few years in down the road, just they totally started crumbled. crumbling. Yeah. And there was all this debt. And like, he just didn't really care because it was all about his power. Well, and then he was on to the Senate and all of that, you know. There's still the capital that he built in Louisiana is still the, I think it's the tallest capital state capital in the nation yeah and they still use it um very very interesting and it was um uh i I remember reading in i read a couple books about huey long and there were uh people in the uh, like in the swamp regions and stuff that were not like before they had television and that sort of thing who like in the 50s and 60s like thought he was the president of the united states (laughs) like it was like they they just had no contact with the outside world and they're like yeah surely that guy was president by now you know, it's very interesting. To think yeah. Anyway. Uh, so putting all these hard examples in front of you, I guess, leads to, to my question to wrap it, wrap that part up, which is, you know, is the statesman necessarily sort of coterminous with good things? You know, like that, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, as, as conservatives, we have certain political policy priorities, um, certain views of American history, certain views of world history and, you know, who who were the the good and the evil sides mm-hmm. of it um in your reading of uh of of history through this angle do, do you think that there is a, a a moral valence to statesmanship or is it a a, a practical talent like mm-hmm. plenty of bad people and plenty of good people have been good at doing the statesmanship thing yeah th- so this is hard um where i come down is that i think it is more a practical talent than 
uh, reflection of of moral virtue. Mm-hmm. And you see there, there's kind of a divergence in the tradition for Cicero, you know, in his book on duties for Erasmus. It really is like there is this kind of belief that like if if the statesman is a good man, right, then the other the the effective governance like it's going to follow from there. Mm-hmm. So the the whole hope is just let us please get a good a good and godly man. I I think you know obviously we should hope, especially as you know mm-hmm. as Christians, like for good and godly mm-hmm. people and political leadership. Mm-hmm. But I think if you're I, I'm more with I think Machiavelli. If you're just look to, to me, to me, like being a good statesman is more akin to being a good NFL quarterback. Yeah. Like, does it help if yeah. they're, let's say, a Christian or conservative? Like, you know, may, maybe like they're more disciplined. They're less likely to like give yeah. into pride or these other vices. And so mm-hmm. maybe that helps them play better. We're sort of orthogonal to those. At the end of the day, they yeah. sh- they still need to be like 6'4 and yeah. like 240 <laughs> and like really fast. Yeah. And like, so to me, it's it, statesmanship is, is, um, yeah, the the other aspect is in a more I think uh, in a pre kind of um, democratic era, there are a lot of other trappings of the office um, that kind of play that moral function, even if the the individual isn't necessarily moral themselves. You know, the whole structure of uh, you know like monarchies, you know, so it is sort of ordered around sort of pointing people up towards the transcendent and towards sort of like a sense of public virtue in a mm-hmm. way that I don't think we have in our current system. Mm-hmm. It's just too individualistic um, today. Yeah. What what changes after the resurrection? You know, the the advent of, of Christianity, what does it change about statesmanship? Because that seems like the, the hinge point in the, yeah. the eras you've been studying is like... Well, <laughs> the big change is like there are no more God kings, right? Yeah. Like Jesus is, he is the God yeah. king, right? And he reigns right he reigns forever mm-hmm. on his throne and so yeah. ultimately i think even the greatest statesmen are taken down a peg they're all taken, <laughs> they're, they're all taken down yeah. a peg um and uh yeah so so i think it you know various earthly kingdoms nations empires like they come and they go right and i think they can either you know broadly i think align their vision of human nature and of the you know the world like they can align it you know in the same direction, you know, with with Christ and his reign, um, or they can resist it and go against it and, and do what they want. I think that's sort of an open invitation for for every culture, for every nation to um, to decide. Yeah. Moving way forward. Um, what after having surveyed the, the classical um, uh, data points essentially here, um, are you convinced is is the biggest weakness of let's say to get super limited in scope the modern republican party's median politician why are they not good statesmen based on what you've yeah. seen well i often think they just sort of live in an imaginary reality <laughs> right um it strikes me as though you know they may have whatever they read the federalist papers they mm-hmm. kind of have a basic understandings of the workings of the constitution uh but i think they they think that government works like it did 200 years ago mm-hmm. and i don't think it really mm-hmm. does right and so i think there's a there's a dose of uh that's not to say we we need to jettison kind of the the ancient ways or or, or strive or not we sh- that we should not strive to sort of recover kind of the best in our american mm-hmm. constitutional tradition like the constitution is the law like that's the framework that we operate in 
Uh, but at the same time, I think there needs to be a, a dose of realism about like how DC actually functions today and what it takes, you know, to successfully operate in that context. Uh, and I know that's, again, kind of getting back to your staffing point mm-hmm. of making sure, especially on the executive side, that administrations have the talent they need to, like, pull the levers that exist mm-hmm. in our current regime, mm-hmm. not just the one that existed in you know, 1789. The second thing, and, and I think this is a it's a challenging thing to, I think, I, to figure this out. But I do think that I understand in D.C., you know, you have to play for a team, you know, like the, there's the red team, and the blue team, like you're on you're on one side. And so there's always if you're going to win elections, like there's a partisan nature to that. Um, but I do think if you're looking at just great leaders generally, they really do have a a vision for the flourishing of the whole regime, mm-hmm. you know. And so there's a way that that even even though maybe their politics might be slightly more representative of one side mm-hmm. or another, there really is this kind of this transcendent yeah. effort to rise above mm-hmm. these factions mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, and I think and I think great leaders mm-hmm. like throughout American history like mm-hmm. have done this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's th- th- their scope is not limited to winning a primary in one party, it's to transcend and like arrive at you know super majoritarian politics essentially this is why yeah, the fdr exactly. example is yeah. is is so interesting mm-hmm. it is again if you know not, not not to force the president of isi to say nice things about fdr but you know it's like if if we're talking about statesmanship as a as a practical ability like he maxed out on it like you know he he transcended the ordinary like four corners of partisan politics mm-hmm. and basically could have ruled as long as yeah. he wanted to. Yeah. In, in one sense, I yeah. think their vision is too idealistic mm-hmm. and not realist enough. But in another sense, I think their vision is too small, mm-hmm. right, about what can be accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you don't read. But <laughs> for you and and for our listeners, um, Conrad Black, listener of Moment of Truth, uh, he will love hearing this, has a great uh, biography. He's a conservative Canadian of FDR. Uh, and it's um, called I think it's Franklin Delano Roosevelt, champion of freedom. And he basically makes that exact yeah. the exact argument that you were making is that, um, you know, it was it was for the betterment of the whole nation. He wasn't trying to secure necessarily hegemony for like Democrats. It was mm-hmm. it was it was he was very particularly concerned um, uh, with the betterment of the nation. I don't I don't agree with like everything that he says in the book, but very interesting. Very yeah. good read. It's like. 1300 pages so it uh, might take you some time yeah and, and i think on that point real quick you know i think we just especially as intellectuals and as conservatives like i think we're just like this to the statesmen like all this is happening like in real time yeah. things are coming so fast mm-hmm. so it's like you know if i were to say like all right if you just get these challenges you know great depression lobbed at you here world war ii mm-hmm. and hitler yeah. like not lobbed at you there yeah like how do you generally yeah. like how do you do like you're not going to tell them to go read some cicero yeah <laughs> if, if you if, if if a person can like generally successfully navigate a country through those two massive crises mm-hmm. like i'm willing to forgive mm-hmm. a lot of other faults you yeah. know so that's that's interesting then so is is statesmanship something that can it can't really be taught it can only be studied upon occurring uh, no, I think it – so the the reason that I love The Mirrors for Princes mm-hmm. tradition and the reason I put together this book is, like, it is not a theoretical book. Mm-hmm. This is a, you know, this is a, a manual, mm-hmm. you know, for an embattled statesman. Mm-hmm. Very practical. It connects, connects the whole world of theory to action. Mm-hmm. So, like, any contemporary political leader or mm-hmm. aspiring one can mm-hmm. open this up and there are concrete – 
nuggets of wisdom and applications mm-hmm. that that both play to their self-interest, mm-hmm. but also to hopefully, you know, mm-hmm. other good and classical virtues. Is Donald Trump a statesman? Is he a statesman? I mean, I think so. I think he's someone who has simultaneously uh, extraordinary virtues and extraordinary vices. Um, and that's not uncommon, sort of, as you look at these these statesmen and in certain traits, they're off, you know, they're off the charts. You know, you think of like his general like political instincts on issues like China or immigration or trade or Middle East wars, mm-hmm. whatever. And he, his gut instinct is really high. But at the same time, there are there are other vices. Right. And I think the personnel uh, aspect is one. I think, you know, um, like flatter, you know, succumbing. There are massive warnings about flattery, like in this whole tradition mm. constantly like beware of the flatter and the reason is like flattery actually is really really effective like mm-hmm. if you're going to try to persuade people like flattery or elements of flattery is like one of the most effective ways to do it and so i think on that point i think it's it's a, a pride thing the the flattery you know can kind of lead to bad personnel choices mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you get people around you who are um not allowing someone like him to lean into their strength their strengths but they're also like trying to maximize his vices because those you know the more you maximize those you can actually exert power over him so is he a great statesman (laughs) is he a great statesman um i think i would i would uh wait for his i I think if you're just if you're looking at it let let's say objectively i think you need you know someone like him you know needs would need another term, you know, and I think there needs to be distance. To be able to evaluate. To be able to evaluate. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Who is the most underrated statesman that you found that you're like convinced this is like platonic ideal of oh, the, the kind of thing question. that we're talking about? Oh, man. So to- I, I really like Thomas More as a mm-hmm. statesman. Um, and there's there's a reason for it. I like to think of Thomas More as a Catholic Machiavelli. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he has this, I, I know we're mm-hmm. probably running short on time, but there, there's this very short dialogue between him and this mm-hmm. wayfaring intellectual named Raphael. Mm-hmm. And he says, Raphael, you should, you know, get in the council of princes, get your hands dirty in politics. And Raphael says like, oh no, you know, like a king will just soil my good ideas. Like I'm, I'm too good for politics. Yeah. And more basically like slaps him on the face and says, you know, <laughs> you fool, like, uh, the reason that our regime is in such a poor state is because philosophers will not condescend to offer their counsel to kings. And then he gives some very practical, realist advice for how you you know you can't abandon the ship in the storm because you can't control the winds. You have to be very artful in sort of you know live within the tension of this imperfect world. So I actually yeah. think Thomas More has amazing advice for statesmen today. I'm going to once again take the inverse. Who is the most overrated? Statesman. No, I was going to save that for the subscribers only. Uh, we're going to go. Okay. We'll get to that. Like, all right. All right. All right. Tough, yeah, yeah. These are the toughest interview questions. Yeah, no, I don't, no softballs here. Um, yeah, no softballs. Not a softball. No, no, no. We're, we're, we're going to save that for later. Um, uh, before we 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 close uh, to our subscribers only section, though, I want to talk a little bit about you. Know, you've been in this position at ISI for a couple of years now. Handicap the modern uh, college campus for me. I'm, I'm I'm sure it's pretty bad, but maybe put some meat on the bones. You know, what, what's wrong with our colleges and universities? Well, you know, <laughs> where where to begin? I mean, I think this year we actually had a turning point, which is a first in, in ISI's 70-year history, where for years, you know, conservatives have been complaining about the radicalism in college campuses. And I think some people paid attention, but by and large, they thought, eh, it's just a few sort of loony professors. But 
it works, you know, generally speaking. And I think the whole Harvard controversy with Claudine Gay really, you know, lifted the veil, showed the emperor has no clothes, not just for conservatives, mm-hmm. but for sort of normies everywhere. Mm-hmm. They all, all of a sudden they see that a lot of this is fake. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it a lot of people are getting rich off this system. It's a credentialing system, a networking system, but it's not really doing the work of education. Um, now at ISI, you know, I actually think right now we're probably seeing in terms of the students that are engaged with us, even compared to 10 years ago, like they are more conservative than ever before. They're more religious than ever before. They grew up in a, in a, to borrow a phrase from one of our friends, Aaron Wren, you know, a negative world. Mm-hmm. And that's very different than growing up in a neutral world. And so I think they're, you know, they're more courageous and they're more hungry to learn the things they're not getting in the classroom. So in one sense, it is true that the students that are coming to ISI There's a divide, you know, some of them, you know, if you're just going to, let's say, an Ivy League school or if you're at top state schools, they know less than previous students in different eras because they just simply have never read like they don't even have a core curriculum in many of these schools. So they don't know the great text, the great ideas. So you have to basically start from the basics. But then you have another cohort of students that came through classical schools or schools like Hillsdale or Grove City. Um, that are that have a foundation that is light years ahead of where students would have been 30 years ago. Um, but in both cases, um, I think the quality of the students that we're dealing with is is much higher than before. For for our honors program, we had over there's a, we only accept 50 applicants. It's our flagship program right now. We have over 400 requests for um, applications for that program. Um, so you know it's hi- highly selective, and I've been very impressed with the the students. Um, I'm curious. Because the the sort of meme of you know these college campuses are going crazy is is so prevalent. Uh, I imagine there's there's a lot of what from your vantage point can look like sloppy thinking about um, about the problem. Um, what what's the what, what what's the meme or, or phrase or concept that you see bandied about in conservative or even just centrist circles that frustrates you that you think misses the ball when it comes to the hmm. problem? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I'll throw one out there. Potentially, yeah, sure. You know, c- colleges should be neutral. Yeah. Should they? Uh, I, well, I think neutrality is impossible. Yeah. Right. Um, but I would I would kind of put a caveat to that. I, I do think different institutions probably if you're looking about at what's sort of realistic and, you know, and what would be the most holistic, I think certain, certain, that's not to say that every college I think ought to be a Hillsdale college, right? I think you would, you know, if you have a flagship state school, uh, it's just part of the the fundamental nature of America as it it is, Mm -hmm. as it is today that you will have, you know, even a a healthy version or let's say the best version of the university of Michigan, for example, Mm -hmm. is probably going to have more, intellectual diversity uh, probably be closer to what we would think of as neutrality if we could sort of engineer it however we wanted Mm -hmm. than a Hillsdale college, because obviously a school like Hillsdale or religious colleges in particular, like some of them even have, you know, you actually have to be, you know, a member of a particular church, like, and you participate in church discipline and like the whole life of the college is really shaped around the liturgical activities of that particular faith tradition. So I don't think you can expect that to to really happen unless there's some, you know, a massive great awakening like at, at state school. So I, in one sense, I think neutrality is a myth because you're never going to um, because, you know, things are always pointed towards a particular end. You know, mm-hmm. they're never fully neutral. But on the other side of things, I think um, 
you know, I would accept. I, I could I could concede sort of neutrality as a goal for a lot of these larger state institutions. Um, and I think we would be better off if we work towards that. How is ISI trying to change the the culture in American education? Practically speaking, what does it do? You know, a lot of our listeners are familiar with you guys, sure. but some might not be. Yeah. So we do, I think, three three things. So one, we're we're filling in the the education that mm-hmm. students aren't getting in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So that sort of very practically means, you know, we're taking Western civilization sort of broadly, right, telling mm-hmm. a story of America's roots going all the way back to Jerusalem, Athens, Rome, London, Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. We're giving them that that narrative arc to understand mm-hmm. our own American order. Uh, and we're also, you know, we've actually distilled what we call 100, 110 concepts for ordered liberty uh, in, in these are in each category from political philosophy to economics to technology and, mm-hmm. and human dignity. And we're really focused on centralizing our curriculum so that students can understand those concepts, you know, in a, in a serious way. The second thing that we're doing is uh, we're building a counter, a counter revolutionary countercultural network. So part of the reason that the Ivy League still have appeal today is because you enter this whole career network. And you're basically you know, set for life in terms of your job, your social status, et cetera. And so we're building an alternative for that uh, for conservative students. And I think we're one of the only in- institutions that can actually you know, go campus by campus. And we could say, like, we literally know who the smartest, most ambitious, most courageous conservatives are, not only at Harvard and Yale, but at also, also at Stanford, at Michigan, at University of Texas and at Hillsdale and at Grove City. And we can actually bring these people in a room and kind of cross pollinate these worlds that don't intersect to hopefully build that leadership class that can rival, you know, what you would get at a larger scale with the Ivy Leagues. Yeah. What do you think um, has changed about the kind of things ISI has to do? Because it's been around for almost 60 years now, Se- right? yeah, 70. 70 years now. What, what has changed since it's um its inception and and how do you guys think institutionally about um, what it means to to tailor an organization like that's mission over time? Sure. Well, I mean, one very obvious thing is when it was founded, you know, it was the kind of the the height of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was it was founded as the intercollegiate society of individualists. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And it was found founded to counter the intercollegiate society of socialists. Right. And so. uh, they actually had a publication called the in, the well the Freeman uh, that was you know published you know by fee that was sent out to all the ISI students mm-hmm. and one of these copies made it to Russell Kirk you know and he basically read through this and uh, he said that it shocked his conscience you know he, that, <laughs> um, he would never even call himself he an individual he hopes he's a person and, <laughs> and he sort of wrote this scathing letter to ISI saying like. You know, get, basically, like get rid of, you know, get rid of Locke, get rid of all of these sort of classical liberal thinkers. Like he was like, you have to capture students' imagination. Like they, that's what you have to do. Like have them read Dante, have them read Homer, like Virgil. Like it has to be an an exercise in imagination, not just like uh, an update in terms of like whatever classical liberal thought. Um, and so ISI over the years then has has made uh, an effort, even consciously, you know, at the board level, pretty early in response to Kirk's feedback of sort of like amending their curriculum to sort of bring in these more sort of, you know, Christian humanist kind of voices. Um, So I think that's one one example. It was very it was it was. And I think the other challenge is that at the time, I do think there was a hope 
that we can actually turn the university system around. Like we can, <laughs> we can win this, you know? And I think now, um, I would, I would say that the, by and large, like the, the elite university, like is, it's unwinnable. You know, it's basically a hedge fund with, you know, uh, that, that supports some, you know, highly ideological, uh, faculty members and it's, it's a credentialing, you know, network and tool, but it, it's really doesn't have anything to do with education. And I think the incentives are so entrenched in the wrong directions that you're, you're never going to save Harvard university. Um, but that doesn't mean, you know, for example, at a school like university of Pittsburgh, we had a, a debate on transgenderism there last year that had, you know, there was basically mass protest, oh, yeah. explosive device. I watched it live. It watched was crazy. It live, right? yeah. FBI arrested um, several of the protesters mm. who set off the, exp- I mean, it was one of the worst and even scariest sort of moments mm. like in my own life, right? Yeah. Being there. Now the tune has sort of changed. I mean, we, we went after the university pretty hard. We worked with Alliance Defending Freedom afterwards. And, uh, Basically, our, our campus group there grew like fourfold since that incident. Uh, they fired and replaced. I don't know if they fired. The, 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 the head of police on campus was either retired or was fired and has been replaced. Is super supportive of, of our group on campus. The administration, you know, released kind of a token statement saying, like, we believe in free speech and, mm-hmm. and free expression. And like, I didn't really take that too seriously. But now their tune has totally changed with our group. Mm-hmm. Like, they're friendly to the group. They say you'll never have to pay any security fees for yeah. events. So those things are, you know, it's not a permanent victory, yeah. but it does show like you can push an issue. And then afterwards, you know, you can actually kind of fight hard on it and you can actually come to a new settlement that actually, you know, our group is four four times stronger than they were last year, and uh, they're able to operate a lot more freely at the university than they were. Things are better a year you know, now than they were a year ago. It's like those are the victories that I think are possible. All right. Well, we're going to have a couple more questions for you, some silly, but also we're going to ask who the most overrated statesman is. Uh, that is exclusively for our subscribers on YouTube. There's two tiers, uh, very apt for this conversation. There's there's truthers and there's statesmen. And so you can go and subscribe on YouTube to get the exclusive, you know, 10 to 20 minutes we do with each of our guests. This is something new we're trying for season four. So if you'd like to support the podcast, you know, many of you listen to it religiously every week it comes out, kicking a couple bucks, help subsidize it. We put on all these fancy cameras and spend a lot on editing. Um, and so uh, that is a way that you can support the podcast. So we'll uh, go now to our subscribers only section. We're grateful as always this week to bring you this episode in partnership with Upward.News. Upward.News is a fantastic political news website run by our friend Ari. Uh, Their daily brief brings you need-to-know news and insights that you won't find in the mainstream media. They've put out fantastic content on Instagram, on Twitter, and many other platforms. Sign up for their newsletters at Upward.News. You know, even with political insiders, many of whom listen to this this show, it's helpful to have people who can collate the most important news items happening uh, across the world every single week. And Ari does that with his various newsletters at Upward.News. Once again, that's Upward.News. Thank you so much for helping bring Moment of Truth to our audience. Johnny, where can people keep up with everything uh, that you are doing? Where can they buy the book and how can they keep up with Intercollegiate Studies Institute? Sure. So first, I'd say, you know, go to ISI.org and follow ISI on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, Clean, clean domain. 
Uh, secondly, you can buy the book on Amazon right now. It is the number one new release in the ancient and classical category. So awesome. please help to boost those ratings. And then you can follow me on uh, X at, at Johnny Burtko. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We certainly enjoyed taping it. Once again, remember, you can sign up for AM Fridays, our, our spring lecture series on Capitol Hill in the Russell Senate office building at AmericanMoment.org slash AM Fridays. Does that yes. work? Fantastic. Yeah, it does. Uh, sign up for the Gala for American Statecraft at statecraftgala.org. We'll have David O. Sachs getting the third rail award for public courage. He's a member of the PayPal Mafia, venture capitalist, uh, brilliant commentator on public life as well, and Senator J.D. Vance. Be sure to sign up for our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe on YouTube. Become a member, a truther or a statesman. Um, and be sure to rate and review this podcast as well. Uh, we have plenty of awesome stuff coming for the rest of the season. This year is a crazy one at American Moment. And we're grateful to you guys as always for joining us for the ride. We'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment podcast taped at the Conservative Partnership Campus Studios and is produced by Jake Mercier, Jared Cummings, Tiffany Kutris, and Matthew Pearson. Our intro song is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich, and our website is AmericanMoment.org.